if you are in a relationship and doing that, is having someone that has your back. Um, because I think you see that in so many expat relationships um, because you really have to be tight-knit and you have to be on the same page because if, if you're not in a foreign country, it can really go pear-shaped. Mm. Um, so I think I felt in the beginning I, I really trusted James and I trusted that while he was doing this to kind of, um, you know, work for his job, um, improve it. He also knew there would be things for me as well, and he wanted there to be things for me. Hello and welcome to the Thriving Bull Podcast, episode 73. I'm Louise Wiles, your host for these conversations where we share stories, strategies, and tips to help you build a thriving international life. So in the introduction, you heard my guest of today, Nicole Webb, talking about how she and her husband made their decision to move abroad for his career. If you are or were a dual career couple, how have you ensured you're on the same page when choosing to live internationally? I believe and I know from experience that it takes a lot of open conversation and honesty, not only with each other, but also with ourselves. The decision-making process matters. The truth is, for career couples, when one partner is offered an international role, it often initiates a career dilemma for the other. It can be easy to look at the relocation opportunity and minimise the potentially detrimental effect that opportunity may have for the second partner's career. In her book, Couples Who Work, an interview with me on episode 8 of the Thriving Abroad Together series, Jennifer Petiglieri talks about the three main transition points that couples experience throughout their lives and the importance of making conscious and agreed decisions at those points. Now, international relocation is one of those transition points and the issue is that when a relocation opportunity arises, we can make snap decisions based on the excitement of the international move itself or the promotion and career opportunity. The thing is, these are both fairly short-term considerations and leave out the longer-term implication of one partner's career potentially stalling. Ultimately, this can lead to future resentment and, not to mention, associated negative financial implications as well. And as Nicole says, it's really important that both partners are on board and supportive of each other's decisions. So my advice before making a snap relocation decision, spend time thinking about your longer term professional and personal aspirations, both individually and as a couple. And if you would like some coaching support to think through your decision, then I can help you. Just email me louise at louisewiles.com and we can arrange an exploratory conversation. So back to my conversation with Nicole. Nicole talks about how she decided to leave her career as a Sky newsreader in Australia and relocate to Hong Kong while pregnant with their first daughter, followed by another move to China to live in a 2-2 city, all in support of her husband's career. Listen to discover how it all worked out and how Nicole has used the experience to develop her career and ultimately write her book, recently published, China Blonde. Enjoy the conversation. 
Hello and welcome. It's really great to have you joining the Thriving Board Conversation today, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, I, I know a little bit about you and your life because I'm currently reading your book. We'll talk more about that a bit later on. Um, but I'm really excited to share with the Thriving Board audience today your story and your insights into um, living abroad, um, internationally mobile, and, and living in particularly Hong Kong and China. So do you want to just give us a little bit of an introduction as to how you came to be living abroad and some timeline I guess around uh, around those moves to those two yeah locations. sure okay so I think I started out as an expat per se uh, when I was a teenager and my family moved me from New Zealand to Australia but at the time it was you know the two countries were so close three and a half hours difference you don't really feel like you're an expat. But maybe that was my first taste of moving to another country and having to start again and start school and meet friends and jobs and all of that. So, you know, that I didn't want to go, as any teenager would say. You know, I don't want to leave all my friends. But we did it. And, and as we always say, we'll be back in two years, you know, and I'm sure every expat's said that just two years and, and never is, is it? So we went to Australia and, of course, it was 30 years later. Um, <laughs> we loved it. And I did a lot of um, work experience once I, once I had decided I wanted to be a journalist and a TV newsreader. Um, I decided just to go for that. And um, it wasn't easy. So I had to kind of move to a lot of different towns in Australia and make my mark. Um, but eventually I got a job as a television journalist in a um, country town and that had taken a while. So I was quite happy to have that. And then a few years later, the big smoke, so to speak, uh, came calling in Sydney and I knew I had to get down to Sydney. And so I moved there and... Um, yeah, we, work was great, ended up doing all sorts of things, you know, producing programs from politics to health to um, eco reports and showbiz. Uh, and then I got to read the main news bulletins and some for New Zealand, some for Australia. And it sort of went on like that for another 10 years, um, which I loved. And it's what I'd always wanted to do. And in that time, I'd had a few sort of relationships that were a bit toxic and not right for me um, and I managed to meet someone on a blind date and I was about 35 <laughs> years old so you know at 35 you think gosh it's all ending <laughs> you know you think you're so old and you're never going to meet anyone and you start thinking of children and I was thinking oh you know my wake up on my 35th birthday thinking well this is it you know crying to my mum and dad Anyway, it turned out to be the defining year for me because I decided for once and for all I would do something for me and I had about eight weeks leave from Sky News and I took a trip to Africa with a girlfriend and um, we decided to volunteer and it was an amazing experience and it was really like where this is really living, you know, this is the how, you know, the other half of the world lives and I loved it and felt like I left a bit of my heart there. And when I returned, um, good old James, who I'd been on that blind date with, was still there and he was just still very polite and still wanted to, um, you know, catch up. And his friends called him Mr Darcy because he was British um, from, you know, um, that show. So um, 
anyway, I just kept meeting him and he just kept being nice. And I just thought, oh, gosh, what's happening here? Anyway, um, things went on and we had a few more dates. And then he said to me very on early on in those dates, um, he said they like us in our um, our profession to really move and uh, move around and that means moving overseas mm-hmm. um, and I kind of dismissed that quite quickly um, only because I guess for me I thought well I had spent so long to get this career going and I'd always been too fearful to leave Australian shores in my 20s um, worried that someone else you know might step in and take it it felt like mm. it was was that cutthroat Mm. So I, I kind of just thought, gee, I'm getting old now and I think my time's come and gone to be doing all that. Anyway, we didn't think of it for too much longer and then we were. he asked me to marry him 11, 11 months later and um, we were married and, you know, living life and off travelling and um, something came through for Hong Kong and I had been to Hong Kong um, just for a few days and it was amazing and... I also had lost a best friend recently and I think it just all culminated in the fact that you live once, you know, let's do it. I had been probably losing a bit of my ambition um, at Sky News because I'd been doing the same uh, shift um, for several months, you know, the night shift where you finish off air at 12.30am and you get home about one. Um, mm-hmm. So it's quite disruptive and, you, and you know, when you're doing the night news, it's not always breaking news. So I was kind of tired of it and I thought I don't really want to be doing the same thing in another 10 years. So we put that to James and um, he was keen, you know. He was like, what, you really want to go? you sure? You're not kidding? And I'm like, yep, let's do it. So lo and behold, um, he put his hat in the ring for the job and he ended up getting it. And um, in hotels they like you to move very quickly. So it was like, right. You're the number one for the job. Um, in three weeks' time, can you be there and ready? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, meantime, you know, we've got to pack up the house and sell two cars and quit the job and, you know, do tie up all those loose ends that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was quite stressful. And he was going over to Hong Kong all the time already. And then we found out that I was having a baby. So, you know, we, we, as newlyweds, we had been trying, but we had said at the time we'll give ourselves a year before we try so we can just relax about it. Mm. And so, of course, it was that timing and you don't think like that first time. <laughs> Anything's <laughs> But, oh, yes, there we go. It's like, oh, you are having a baby. So I was like, holy man, what are we going to do here? So, yes, off we went to Hong Kong. And we were living in a hotel that he was going to be working in for about six weeks. And I had to find doctors and hospitals and all sorts. And, you know, while English is spoken, it's still not the number one language. And Mm. it's still very foreign, even though it has that British influence. You know, it's still a very foreign-looking city and the food is very foreign and, um, you know, everything about it is very different to what we knew so yeah it did take quite some time um to adjust to that as because I guess I was also adjusting to my body which was you know growing and growing and which I had never 
never experienced before and I'm trying to adjust to, you know, I can't drive all of a sudden because it was too crazy. Um, mm. I can't get a proper job with the visa situation. So it said housewife. So that was kind of quite, um, you know, denigrating, I guess. It just felt ugh. And, um, you know, I didn't have any of my family and my sister Mm. around. And James was obviously busy, busy, busy 24-7 because he's got this new role and the W Hotel was huge and they were really, you know, trying to become something and they needed to Mm. be on fire. So... Mm. He had to be amongst it, and um, and then of course I couldn't even drink. <laughs> and I remember he would be he would be like, "I'm ju- I'm just gonna have a drink with the boss. I have to." Um, you know, he was really good about it. You know, he's like, "You don't mind?" I'm like, "I don't mind." But then I walked away in tears because I was like, "Oh my god, it's just not fair." You know, here I am. I'm just stuck. You know, um, but I think it was, yeah. No, I, well, I just wanted to, that was one of the issues I wanted to, or topics I wanted to just discuss a bit with you. And, and, and you kind of touched on it as you described making that decision to move, because one of the big issues, you know, in, in global mobility at the moment, you know, across the board, really, is this issue of dual career couples and encouraging them to, to, to move because often, you know, the, the, partner male or female depending on whichever way around it is um is is going to leave behind a career um to support the other partner's career so it sounds to me as though you were at a natural kind of break in your career at the point you decided to move to Hong Kong that there was a kind of you said you were a bit tired with what you were doing yeah I think how much did that feed into this this decision? To, yeah, to I think so. I think I had become a little bit lazy in my job because I'd been there for 10 years and I'd done everything and um, I just, you know, I didn't have that drive or desire to do more, mm. which I probably would have, say, now. So I just thought you know, the way for me to really experience something and do more with my life, I think, is to move and take myself out of my comfort zone. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also was at that point, which I think this is a big part, is having, if you are in a relationship and doing that, is having someone that has your back. Um, Because I think you see that in so many expat relationships um, because you really have to be tight-knit and you have to be on the same page because if, if you're not in a foreign country, it can really go pear-shaped. Mm. Um, so I think I felt in the beginning I, I really trusted James and I trusted that while he was doing this to kind of, um, you know, work for his job, um, improve it, he also knew there would be things for me as well and he wanted there to be things for me. Um, mm. But I was the one that pushed it more than him. So, um I think, yeah, and I mean, look, it wasn't easy, you know, when you get there and you do see the visa and it says housewife and you think after all that work you've done and, you know, that's what you are, but you sort of just have to have a little chuckle and think, well, that's the way it is. And, and you, you, you know, it took, I always keep saying to people, I was quite down for a while and thinking I don't know what I can do because I didn't really want to go back into news reading in Hong Kong. A, probably because I didn't have the confidence at the time, having had a baby, 
to go in there. Um, mm. Looking back, I probably would have nailed it because I'd just come out of 24-7 news. But mm. I didn't realise that, you know, you don't <laughs> see what you're capable of. Um, and then I just wanted something a bit more flexible so I could spend time with Ava because, you know, I was mm. 39 when I had her. So I felt like I've had a lot of time for me. I want to have time for her. Um, so I was just sort of looking for flexible work. And then this friend pointed out to me that you've got 20 years of media under your belt, which doesn't just include reading an auto cue, you know, all of that, that brings you to that point. There's so many different things from producing to writing, to organizing, um, to media training, you know, um, all those bits and pieces that you've been doing over the years um, can be something. And I thought, yeah, she's right. You know what? That's true. So that kind of woke me up a bit. And mm. I think not long after I got a maybe through some another friend um, an opportunity to do um, an MC gig. And I was, Ava was nine weeks pregnant. And I was pretty terrified because MC, people probably think it's the same, but it's nothing like reading the news because well for mm -hmm. me who's a bit of an introverted extrovert you've got the entire audience you know when In you're emceeing you. yeah. when you're on the news you've just got yeah. a few yeah. cameras yeah. and so I can't I can't see all the people um mm -hmm. so that was always a bit nerve-wracking for me and also just um with this particular event it was a million different Asian names from Thailand to Malaysia to Singapore <laughs> so I was just trying to sort that out but it was a beautiful Manila family and I did that and you know I had to have breast pads in and a dress probably two or three sizes bigger because Ava was nine weeks old and off I went and I managed to do it and it was reasonably successful and it must have been because they've had me back uh, for 10 years since. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, even when I moved to China, I thought, oh, this will be it. You know, they won't want me to get me down and they still flew me down. And then we moved to Australia and I thought, okay, well, that was nice. But, yeah, that, that's the end of that. And they've been flying me to Australia from Australia. So obviously not this year, sadly, with COVID. It's the first year I haven't. But, yeah, they're just a beautiful <laughs> family that really look after each other and count yeah. me in it. Yeah, so it's good. Brilliant. So, so hearing you describe all of that and just going back to sort of making the decision, I think the point you made, just wanting to summarise this in a way for people listening, you sort of made quite a proactive decision, but it sounds like it had been a well-discussed vision, um, sorry, decision with um, your partner. And I, I, you know, the point that it is something that you both decided to do together and you said, you know, he had your back and you've got his, you're, you, you see it as a, a dual um, opportunity even though it's a dual opportunity for one person's career, I think is a really important point because what I've observed over the years with people is sometimes the, the move creates this imbalance in terms of the power dynamics in relationships and, and that can have a really negative impact on, relocation, on, on relationships um, going forward. So having that sort of openness and that, that supportive environment is, is really important, I think. And, and it sounds like that was something that was really important and the basis and the foundation of, of your decision to move. Am I right in yeah. saying that? Yeah, yeah, you are, absolutely, because I, I don't think I would have done it without him. Um, mm. I think I would have been just dismissed that as something that wasn't happening in my life. But, 
you know, suddenly when you do find that person that is, you know, okay with who you are and is okay to support you and you want to support each other and bring out the best in each other, I knew that he would look after me um, and I would look after him. So I knew we were in it together. And I yeah. think that just just meant so much more because you've got someone there to hold your hand, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's not to, it's not to say it's perfect all the time. And there were, and we had many of those resentful arguments over the years <laughs> where, you know, I get resentful and, you know, I used to earn more than you and look at what's happened to me, you know, but they were always short lived. And, and James was always very good with them because he knew where it was coming from. It's just coming from that place of what am I doing and what have I got sort of thing. So yeah. it's been yeah. important for me to try and have something of my own um, yeah. because it, you know, even when we went to China, it was my choice. So it wasn't like he was dragging me along. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that's a really important point, um, feeling that you have made a, and, and being aware that you actually made a proactive choice about it because, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about my experience as well, having moved six times with my my husband's and his job has always been the the, the, move, the motivator behind it. And I know one move I didn't actually really make a choice. Um, I let it happen and I had to work really hard around that, you know, and, and, and then every time after that, we would sit down and it would be, right, do you really want this? Because if you don't, we won't. And, and I was very conscious that each time I was making a choice to, to, to move and therefore couldn't, <laughs> couldn't bring it back yeah. up. You know, I'm okay, yes, I, I yeah. totally relate, relate to those resentful moments because they've happened for me as well. I but think it, go, really it goes down. both ways. Yeah, yeah, it goes both ways, doesn't it? And if someone's yeah. not feeling right, it's like it's hard because you both feel it if the other one's off kilter with it. Yes, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'd say, you know, really important to make a joint choice and to be – and a really honest conversation around it all. And what I also love, and it's come out strongly to me, you know, many partners talk about, you know, seeing the visa with housewife on it and yeah. you know, leaving their careers and identities behind. And I think so often the really important thing to remember is that, okay, you may have left a job behind, but you haven't left all those skills and knowledge and talents yeah. behind. You take and those with you. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's what that that girlfriend I had and still have, she said to me, you know, when I was probably whinging maybe a couple of months into Hong Kong and she's like, what are you talking about? Like, look at all the things you have done over the years, Um, you know, um, from becoming a journalist on the road and TV to, you know, interviewing lots of quite well-known Australians to, you know, putting together programs and I, I did a documentary when we got back from uh, Africa. So, you know, you just forget that all of the things that make those up are quite a lot of things. And um, I was quite glad she said that to me because <laughs> I, I just had, oh, I thought I was just good at, you know, changing the nappies at lightning speed and, <laughs> you yeah. know, singing nursery rhymes and you do. And I think a lot of mums feel like that, even if you haven't moved abroad. So I think it's just, yes. And I say that in one of my talks, it is just sitting down and really nutting out, you know, you're not just the sum of that title. There is so no. much. More mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one 
area that I just like to have just your few sort of bits of advice for you know a lot of people do move abroad and either they're pregnant when they move I was the same as you I moved abroad when I was three months pregnant at uh, one point. Yeah. and so I totally relate to that but I'm really interested to, do you have some tips um, and advice for for people who are going through that in a new location um, about how they can Oh, support themselves I guess through what is a tough time adjusting to yeah. a new location and adjusting to you know the thought of a new child um and if it's the first child motherhood go shopping <laughs> <laughs> go shopping and At buy which Hong Kong, you're anything. situated to do yeah. yeah I mean for me it was easy because we lived on a 43rd floor of this high rise and directly underneath <laughs> was um like h&m and zara and so i would just wait till she was sleeping and sidle on in there and like just find clothes and, and then she'd wake up while i was in the changing rooms and i'd have to sometimes just ditch <laughs> the changing rooms and come back later but you know i think in those times you know you can do things like that but um you can also trying to think of how you get by in a time like that because it's not easy but I I joined a pregnancy group which was Mm -hmm. really so out of my comfort zone I had always said I don't think I could join a mother's group and here I was (laughs) there they had these pregnancy groups and basically you joined the one that your baby was due so these babies were due between December and February and mm. off we went to meet them. And I remember just waddling up the hill in this crowded, humid um, place in Hong Kong looking for some sort of pizza hut. And I couldn't find it and sweat's dribbling down me. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, you know, you, you just have many of those moments. You just think, why mm. am I doing this? And then I walked in and it was all a bit awkward. You know, the, the waiter knew exactly where to send me because we all had big bellies. And then we <laughs> sat there and it was just that small talk, I guess, and chit-chat and, um, you know, you come away thinking, well, that was kind of weird and I didn't really meet anyone. But, you know, there was one woman there that really struck a chord with me and um, we left it and then I think another couple of months we had it when all the babies were born, we had a girls' night out um, and that was different too. And then we sort of saw each other in a different light as well because having a few drinks and all of that. And then I think you just start to find who you fit with, you know, mm, and mm. and one of my best friends came out of that group and is still one of my great friends today. So I really think it's worth it, even though at the time you just think, oh, do I really have to put myself through this, you know? Um, but I think you just need one friend, a like-minded friend that you can have a cup of coffee with. You know, yeah. that's just, a, you know, just to get you through those days. I think that's yeah. what you need in the beginning anyway. I, I totally agree. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I can relate to the not wanting to join pregnancy groups. And we, the first, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, we just repatriated back. And I was, we yeah. moved back home when I was seven or eight months pregnant. And I joined a, we, in the UK, they do have really great sort of systems for 
antenatal postnatal groups and I joined one with exactly those thoughts I think they (laughs) they relate to that but out of that came a couple of really well actually three or four really good friends we we, we were a good group (laughs) and that went me for a few years and then we moved abroad and we moved to Madeira and they didn't have anything like that and I was so lonely for the first well probably four or five months well no pregnant for six months and then you know had the baby had my second daughter and I remember the first three or four months pretty lonely and then I took my daughter to a my elder daughter to a swim lesson I was sat around the pool and this lady next to me who was Portuguese suddenly turned to me and started speaking to me in English and and we she was pregnant I just had my baby she was about to have hers she was living on the island you know had had just moved and yeah. we we became such great friends and Aww. Susanna if you're listening she was my life saver <laughs> and you know we it was just so fantastic and she, they're so important friends now and so uh, all I'd say to people out there you know if you're if you're feeling lonely then find some of these groups or find some of these common interest opportunities or activities and a friend will emerge exactly (laughs) when someone will (laughs) I know I can remember being in Xi'an and of course it was just smaller than small it had still had you know nine million people but the number of expats had shrunk considerably when you think Hong Kong had about 100,000 mm-hmm. um, I, I reckon maybe 1,000 and oh, wow. it was a big spread out city and I didn't see any white people for a long long time and I, just one day we were driving by and I saw a blonde lady with a little blonde head girl and I just had wanted to throw my business card out of the window you know and say <laughs> hello can you see me um, but by the time I did that, she was swallowed up by those crazy crowds. But, yeah, you know, I thought I've got to find some something somewhere. And I had been dropping Ava off to the school, but they did it a nine to a three um, school day, five days a mm. week. And she was only three and a half. So I was just not quite ready for her to be doing that. So I would pick her up at 12. So therefore, I didn't really meet any of the mums that might have been picking up their kids. Mm, mm. Um, so, so for the first few months I was really sort of on my own we had James parents come and mine so that sort of helped a lot um and then I think it was um Facebook and my I was running my blog still and someone found me and said do you color blonde hair do you know someone who colors blonde hair in Xi'an and I was like no no <laughs> I'm trying to find one but not yet and she said, oh, well, should we have a coffee? So I'm like, yeah, so let's have a blind date. <laughs> so we did that. And um, she's become my, you know, all-time best friend. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah. So the ones of Facebook. So that's another opportunity yeah. for people out yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because often <laughs> Facebook often has these, you know, groups for expats, um, but they didn't have one in Xi'an. So mm. it was just through this um you know, my blog, she said that. But then another Facebook group um, for the magazine, a magazine in Xi'an, um, another teacher found me on that. So, yeah, you had to kind of dig hard and find out. Yeah, yeah. But eventually you kind of find your pool of expats and you feel a bit better about things and, mm, you know, mm, they might mm. they might not be your people but you've got someone and yeah, you just keep yeah. going. yeah. Yeah. So turning sort of the conversation to China then. So your husband had a, a job opportunity in, is it, how do you pronounce the city? Xi'an. 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 Okay. Yeah. Which 
is is it am I right in saying it's a tier is it a tier two or tier three city yeah. of the Chinese? It's a second yeah. tier, yeah, second, second tier, tier city. city. Yeah. Okay. So not many, as you said, foreigners there. Um so how different was that as a sort of adjust or how different yeah. was the adjustment process there compared to Hong Kong? Because when you say it's a second tier city, it's quite hard to imagine. But I guess the thing is, in China, there are 360 million cities, I think. So Guangzhou and Beijing and Shanghai um, uh, and yeah, Shenzhen are those first four tier cities and the cities that you think of when you think of China, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, they're, they're just growing up overnight. Like China is just changing literally overnight. Um, and then a second tier city is still like a full on city. Mm. Um, it's probably just not quite as slick or, um, yeah, it's not as, I don't know, um, doesn't have as much going on for it. So, for example, yeah. when, when we arrived in Xi'an, you know, it's like stepping back in time to the 70s, mm. Every, everyone's smoking everywhere. Um, you know, people are still urinating in the streets um, in front of you. Um, <laughs> you know, smoking's like it's back in the 1960s. Um, it's just, it, I, I always used to say I should call this book Beneath the Surface because on the surface it looks magnificent. These old ancient buildings that have stood mm. the test of time and when they light them up at night they are just stunning and mm. lan- red lanterns strung up across the city. It's beautiful. Um, but I guess it's just a lot of these people that have come into these cities are really from um, rural villages mm, mm-hmm. where, thing, where things are pretty you know low there and they've had this big push over the last decade or more to bring them into the cities and a lot of them just don't cope with being in suddenly in this big city and how they're supposed to act um so it's just quite difficult for them I imagine too um you know for example when the the, um, when you cross the lights and it, it's green and we all know we can go or the little man makes a noise, well, that's not even really adhered to. They don't even notice that. You just you just cross when you cross and cars just weave in and out and re- they go sort of slow so they're unlikely to hit you, but you're just kind of weaving in and out on this crossing. So it doesn't mean that all the cars will stop and wait at all. <laughs> So I remember at first thinking, I don't think I'm going to ever get to cross this road and I need to because Starbucks is over there. <laughs> so <laughs> just you just have to, you know, and there's just all the strange noises like, you know, it's deafening because everyone uses the horn instead of uh, the indicator. So that's just constant. Um, and then there's firecrackers going off left, right and centre um, so it can feel a bit like a war zone at times. Um, <laughs> it's just so mad and crazy and you're just like, what are we doing here? And then you retreat back to the hotel and uh, hey, it's a relative until calm. Have, yeah, until yeah, you have to yeah. get that again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think what hit me as I was reading your book was how much, because there weren't that many foreigners around, how much you and your daughter were noticed and mm. kind of a, a focus for people's attention and, and being yeah 
quite inquisitive I guess about you that must have been quite they difficult were. to cope with yeah. yeah I think in the and especially in the beginning when you don't really know what their motives are and you don't mm -hmm. know what the Chinese culture's like um you know a lot of them would come I remember and they would prod and poke her and all crowd around her and take photos sort of smiling and I'm hanging on to her and then um one of the old man old toothless grandpa picked her up and put her on his shoulders and you know, I'm just thinking, oh, my God, what's happening? Is he going to mm. run off with her or, you know, because you hear stories in China about that as well. And I didn't know much Chinese. I didn't even know how to say put her down. So I was just like making angry gestures and waving around to get <laughs> her down, you know. And, but much later I, I realised that it's just sheer fascination you know, many of them, because many, we had this big wild goose pagoda that was opposite the hotel and it was 1,300 years old where the silk camels would have come along and put the Buddhist scripts in there. So a lot of people from all over China wanted to come and see that and they were in, um, you know, these much less villages where they'd never seen a white person except perhaps on television. So mm -hmm. it was just really bizarre to them and, and they didn't mean any harm by it. It was just really wanted to see what we were doing and what we mm. were looking like mm. and mm. what we would eat. So, you know, once you get past that's what they like, you can kind of let it go and just have a bit of a joke or have a bit of a fun with it. And, you know, Ava got used to just having to line up with pictures with them and then wanting to, you know, play with her dolls. And we would just pretend we were Brangelina and we were really famous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you know even living in our apartment people were just constantly because it had floor to ceiling windows so it was not you know unusual that I would see a cleaner or someone on the outside with her arms you know her hands clasped around her face trying to get a good view in <laughs> oh my goodness so, uh, see what see what in the gold bowl uh, fish in the goldfish bowl and doing yeah yeah, yeah. and I guess yeah. I guess sort of hearing all of that those stories you know, you, you talk talk about you know, understanding a culture at a certain level you know um perhaps a sort of cultural orientation course that gives you the basic cultural tendencies for a, for a, for a country but then moving and living that is just on a whole different level isn't it <laughs> I guess nothing it is such a different level prepare no. you for that and I think and, and I think it takes such a lot of time as well there's just so many miscommunications mm. all the time and because it's such a difficult language I think they have problems themselves in their language because it's open to so much interpretation because one word can mean so many different things if you just mm. get the wrong wrong tone so <laughs> you oh. just there's so many miss oh it was a misunderstanding sir oh misunderstanding it's like oh my gosh but it just really does take a long time to understand the way they think and of course the way they think and view life does come a lot from history and it's such a mm. big part mm. of who they are and the way they still revere the prime minister the president um you know he's bringing the country up to this great standard. And for them, them, that's all that matters is that they are now out of, many of them are out of poverty. There's that mm. new middle class that's coming up, whereas until then it's always been 
have you got enough to eat? And that was their um, greeting until not long ago. It was um, you met someone, meaning have you eaten? So right. it's just the fact that the country has come so far in such a short time, mm -hmm. I think why they hold their presence so high. And then also at the same time, it's just not the dumb thing to talk about politics. Like we would talk about politics over dinner or we with friends or all the time. It's just not even on their radar. They just don't mm. really talk about it. Mm. That's quite mm. interesting. Yeah. 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 So there's kind so of an like acceptance example, about, you know. Yeah, gone. they just accept it is what it is. And if you say censorship, for example, they'll be like, what censorship? Because to them... It is, it's not censored to them. They get, they see that they get their English news and even though that's been overseen by the government again, um, it doesn't bother them. So, I mean, I'm sure it is bothering some of those up and coming generations now and they're starting to question it. But for the those average, you know, from, I don't know, 35 up, there's that it is what it is type thing. And even today trying to tell Gao Lei, who's a big character in the book, he was my hairdresser and he's just a really <laughs> cheeky, lovely guy and he knows a little bit of English and we try to teach her. Um, and he, I wanted him to have the book, um, but he doesn't really know how to get onto my website to purchase it and he wouldn't have the right card to do it. Mm, um, mm. He just, it just it's something he just he doesn't know. So he said I can go on WeChat. I went on WeChat because I still have an account and I do, but to accept money I have to have a Chinese card, which of course I don't. So mm. it's all too hard. So I said, look, I'll <laughs> just send you one for free <laughs> because, you know, that's there's just those things where you can't cross those barriers, you know. Yeah. You are yeah. really on in different planets almost. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I guess... So from the outside looking in, I've never been to China, but I suppose, of course, with the coronavirus and, and you know, just looking at the way that China coped with it, you just describing sort of their level of adherence and just, you know, following the leader, you can understand how they coped so extensively with the virus and, and mm. kind of got on top of it so quickly compared to, oh, I'm yeah. just thinking, you know, I'm sitting in the UK compared to the UK where we're... <laughs> laughing around <laughs> um yeah what well, well, yeah oh that's what they have to do I mean they have mm -hmm. the ability to get everyone and, and there's no sort of backlash from it so mm. everyone's going to do this you're all going to be locked down I want to have tags that test you and tell you what your temper is if you have a you don't go in if you have bread you're a and they've sort you know they just manpower because they have the people um and they also have the power to do it and they don't um the backlash from if they tried to do it in australia or what happened wouldn't work whereas i mean and that's you can say it's good and bad but look where they are now they've sort of come out of it and they're doing okay how, how much of kind of this interest in china and the chinese culture played into your development of your career in terms of becoming an author writing a book and because I kind of think is there a link there that the fascination with the culture and your experiences oh, absolutely. To share it? Yeah. yeah 
absolutely. I always wanted to write a book and I always joke that, you know, all journalists like to think we've got a book in us. Um, but I really did. I mean, I used to write a lot as a kid. And as I said, I wanted to be a librarian. Um, but I just never knew what. And again, being pigeonholed in Australia, it's not something I would have ever branched out to do. So being overseas gave me that freedom. And um, I think I just decided to... Um, I, I thought once we said we were going to China, in my mind I thought China has to be the story. And as soon as I mm -hmm. set foot on Chinese soil and it was just so different, I just knew somehow it would make a story. I didn't know quite what and I was, it wasn't until I was about a year into China and felt comfortable, a little bit more comfortable, um, that I started to do interviews um, with people from all over China. So, you know, um, World War II veterans um, who'd fought against Japan um, to um, government officials on a lower level, to hoteliers, to um, lots of young women coming up and what they thought of China, um, group of women who were in middle age, how they felt about life, you know, like a sex in the city chat for Chinese. <laughs> so it was kind of, and I sort of blended a lot of that. And I, you know, I didn't use all my interviews, obviously, but they shaped the story. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I got oh, my acupuncturist, I went and did an interview with him and my translator, who was a girlfriend. And, um, then he made us lunch after that, which was strange. <laughs> um, and then um, when we got back, I, everyone, I had the opportunity to start doing courses in writing. And, of course, they said it's got to be a memoir. And I'm like, okay, what's a memoir? And then they're like, now you know you've got to be in it. I was like, what? Um, <laughs> I hadn't really planned on myself being in it. Um, but then the more they talked about it and, you know, my journey as well, I thought, okay, so somehow I've got to weave my journey into it, which I realised I could weave the funny things that happened and the difficult things and try and I wanted it to be educationally entertaining. So I could at the same time make it funny and interesting for you, but maybe you learned a little bit about China today because I think beyond the headlines that we see even more so now with coronavirus, we still don't ever hear about the average Chinese person, you know, and what they do every day. Brilliant. Well, and I can vouch for that combination of um, yeah, <laughs> detail about living in China, a bit of historical insight and also yeah, story about you and your experience and it is all interwoven. So highly recommend. Yeah, um, and those different, yeah, themes with your girlfriends and who, why you choose mm. the sort of girls you do and your own identity, all of that comes into it really, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So definitely highly recommended. So if people want to learn more about you and the book, where can they go to, to find out more? Yep, I think the best place at the moment is uh, go to my website first, www.nicolewebonline.com, and there you can buy a signed copy of my book and I can send that globally. Um, and um, Amazon has got an ebook up to, which you can get, and um, there's another place in Australia, but you probably don't want that audience. Um, I'm hoping to get Amazon paperback up soon too. 
Um, so yeah, really, I guess for paperbacks come to me and eBooks go to Amazon if that's what you're after basically, but it's, it's around a few places. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I will put stores. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. Well, I will put those links in the, in the, on the blog post that accompanies this episode. So thrivingabroad.com and look for this interview with Nicole. Um, and just one final question, what would be your top number one tip um, for building a thriving life abroad? I always ask my guests this question, putting you a bit on the spot there. <laughs> no, I think you have to be all in. I think it's very easy to go to these countries. And even I did that when I first there. I had my company's news keep my job open for another year, just in case, you know. And I could go back. And that means you have one foot in so you really don't have to adapt too much. But I think that can be harder and take longer. And then you and if you go and I think if you're going home too much, um, you feel like you're not really living in that place. And which I did go home a lot because of Ava and the baby, but then they came to me. I think you really have to go just in the country, immersing in it and you learn more about the city and about things that you didn't know and make up your life in a foreign country which is to make us feel alive you know that's why Mm -hmm. we're there living so I think to do that you've just got to those strings and not so much have a deadline we're doing this for two years just see what may come yeah, and and also know that if it did go if it did go pear shaped, you can always come home. Like nothing's forever. Yes, there's always the option of a. Yeah. Oh, I suppose the importance of having a backup plan as well, <laughs> which is something else I always. Yeah, I mean, I think important. you can always. I mean, I remember Mum saying that to me when I was panicking. She's like, "If it doesn't work out, you can just come home." Mm. It's like, yeah, mm. okay. So, yeah. but you know, usually. We don't usually come home because we usually get there and once we get over the hard part, we realise how much we can grow and learn and how great it is. So we're not coming home for another few years. Yeah, you're not going to go through all that hard work, particularly as you describe in China, and then come home after after one no. year. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we could have stayed on another six months to a year easily, I think, but mm-hmm. you've got to go, you've got to go. Yeah, fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much. And um, Nicole, I'll put all the, the links in the blog post associated with this episode. But thank you so much for your time today. It's really been great speaking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really appreciated being able to come on your programme. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening today. Remember to access the blog post and transcript, go to thrivingabroad.com and look for episode 73. And do get in touch if there is any way in which I can support you. You can email me directly, louise at louisewiles.com. If you're facing a relocation dilemma, I can support you as you think it all through and help you to make an informed decision that takes account of your professional and personal aspirations. Also, do subscribe to my regular podcast newsletter. You can do so on the Thriving Bull website and then I will be able to keep you up to date with all the future podcast and Thriving Abroad news. 
Thank you once again to Nicole for joining me today and sharing your story. Remember to go and check out her website, Nicole Webb, that's with a double B, online.com. I'll be back soon with the next episode in the Thriving Broad podcast series. Meanwhile, take care and stay well wherever you are in the world. Bye-bye for now.